Hello everyone, this is uh, Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words. Uh, in our last episode, we delved deep uh, into computational thinking and reimagining maths education. Uh, and we spoke about how technology is growing our capacity to solve increasingly complex problems. On this episode, we'll continue to discover how this kind of thinking is being adapted, uh, this time in the biotech industry. Uh, and our guest uh, for this episode is uh, Rachel Howitz, CEO and co-founder of Caribou Biosciences. Uh, Rachel is an inventor and biologist who's developed several patents uh, relating to CRISPR, the breakthrough gene editing technology. Uh, during our conversation, we uncover the breakthrough technologies uh, that Rachel developed and is implementing on the ground. And we also discuss some of the ethical questions that these technologies uh, raise. Uh, this episode will help you learn more about gene editing and understand how our education systems can help raise awareness uh, and educate about genomes uh, and genetic technologies. With that, I give you Rachel Harwitz. Rachel Harwitz, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you for having me. Uh, Rachel, you're the uh, president, CEO, and, and founder of Caribou Biosciences, uh, which is a, a startup that's uh, involved with the uh, gene editing technology that uh, that we know of as CRISPR. Uh, so very cutting edge, very high tech in the biosciences uh, sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about how you got into uh, into this this space, um, and and what uh, uh, what directed you towards towards the sciences and in particular the biosciences. Sure. Well, my my most recent step before coming to Caribou was actually going to UC Berkeley to get a PhD in molecular and cell biology, and Caribou was actually founded out of some of the work that was done in the lab where I, I did my thesis research. Um, all four of us who founded the company were Cal scientists at the time. Um, though I'll admit my, my original interest and, and ultimate love for science came actually from middle school. Um, so my father is a newspaper reporter, and for many, many years he covered an environmental and, and science-based beat. He had an opportunity one summer when I was in middle school to take a course for a few weeks at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. And so the whole family went, and while he was in class all day, my mom took my brother and me around to really any lab who would let us in to expose us to the research that was happening there, um, and I loved it. I just thought it was incredibly cool. I think it helped that there were a lot of tanks that you could reach in and, and touch the sea creatures, and, and so I'm sure as a middle schooler, that's, yeah. that's what I found most interesting. Um, but ultimately, it was my freshman biology high school teacher who really cemented my passion for science. Um, I'd still say, as of today, that's still the toughest class I have ever taken. Yeah. Um, he did not like the textbooks that were assigned by the state of Texas, and he assigned us uh, college course books instead. It was incredibly challenging. I don't think I've ever worked so hard since, mm. um, but it was amazing. And really, in his passion for science, I think he communicated to us incredibly well. And I've been figuring out how to do something related to science and biology ever since. Ever since, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a really interesting story. And let's stay with that for, for a little while, if you don't mind. So there was the passion on, on the part of the teacher. There was the, the willingness to kind of break with the sort of conventional textbook 
uh, approach and, and assign a more challenging mm -hmm. curriculum. What else did he do that could help, again, people, you know, sort of understand what, you know, I think all of us intuitively understand the importance of a great teacher can have in our lives. But but I think I'm trying to get to the essence of what makes someone a, a really good teacher. Yeah, one, one of the things he required us to do was to design and carry out our own experiment, um, which maybe sounds pretty normal in a lot of biology classrooms. But our high school didn't have the resources mm. to have anything in the classroom to use for a laboratory. Yeah. So not only did we have to design and carry it out, we had to do it at home. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that was a pretty tough challenge. Um, and I was at a complete loss initially as, as to even what questions to try to ask and how to build a hypothesis around that. Yeah. So I found myself sitting um, in my parents' extra bedroom at home and noticed on the bookshelf a number of my mother's old college science textbooks. And I found one that had this crazy idea that somehow planaria, which are these tiny little flatworms, somehow they store some of their memories in RNA molecules. Mm. And these little worms are cannibals. They eat each other. So there was a hypothesis that one worm could gain another worm's memories by eating it. But consuming it, wow. And high school me thought that was a pretty radical idea, wow. and I wanted to try to figure it out. Yeah. And so <laughs> with my parents' help, I ordered several hundred planaria, uh, had them living in Dixie cups uh, scattered all across the family dining room table. And for several weeks, I taught one whole cohort of planaria a little maze and then chopped them up and fed them to the other half of the worms to try to see if they had learned the maze or not. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think my results were inconclusive at the end, but I had loved yeah. that whole concept of going from a blank sheet of paper to using literature, using textbooks, yeah. to figure out kind of where, where was a field and how could I help try to drive that to the next step. Yeah. Um, obviously, I didn't really accomplish that goal, but I found that that process of asking a yeah. question and carrying out an experiment to try to answer the question is really satisfying and, yeah. and really compelling. Yeah. And I think that's that's what really um, bit the bug for me. Yeah, and, and again, I, think, I mean, I've had I've had conversations with with, uh, with with scientists before this one, and and again, this is sort of a it, this idea of, of, of science is essentially a process. Mm -hmm. Is, is is kind of a recurring theme because I think there's a, a, a misperception out there that, that science is some kind of uh, ideology or, mm -hmm. or you know uh, book of truths that <laughs> one one is given whereas I mean obviously truths come out of science but but science itself is is to, to a certain extent a, a, an agnostic process. Right, yeah. right. No, I, I very it's much a process of discovery. It. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's you know you start with a few things that you think are true, uh, one question that you try to ask, and you try to design as simple and sometimes as elegant an experiment as you can to try to answer that one question, yeah. and then step by step help to build up a field and, and an understanding about some new area of the world or, or yeah. of, of biology. Yeah, no, it, it's it's fascinating. So, so you, obviously you had very supportive parents as well. Um, you know, I, I don't know many uh, parents that would allow their their dining room table to be used as a as a lab. I have been forgiven for the dining room table. <laughs> However, the particular spoon that I use to transfer worms from cup to cup 
has been forever called the planaria spoon. Yeah. And though, of course, it's been washed a gazillion times, I'm pretty sure my father will still not touch it until this <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> For good reason, I'm sure. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, uh, again, one of the big issues that we have today is, is in this country and in, in, in much of the, I would say, the developed world, less so surprisingly in the developing world, but the, the issue of, of uh, girls and women in, in science and STEM subjects. Um, for, first of all, I, I mean, I think we, we ought to acknowledge that there is an issue. Mm-hmm, there, there is a very small number. I mean, even allowing for perhaps, you know, I don't know, genetic preferences or, 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 or whatnot that have to do with the sexes, even if you allow for some difference, there's still a disproportionately small number of girls and women in, uh, in, in STEM education. What, what are your thoughts about that? What are some of the reasons that you think are behind this? And, and what can we do to, to reverse that? Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm actually really proud of the fact that at Caribou, our team is almost exactly 50-50 men and women. Um, and that makes us pretty unusual in the biotech yeah. community and certainly very unusual as a startup company in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people ask me how we got there, what sort of formulas and policies we yeah. use. And the answer is really none of those. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of data that shows if you start with a diverse team, you end up with a diverse team. Um, the four of us who founded the company, two men and two women. Um, yep. you know, early folks we brought on, men and women. Early folks on the board of directors, men and women. I, I think it self-perpetuates. Uh, yep. that, that can be good if you start with a diverse team, and that can be challenging if you start with a, a non-diverse yep. team. Um, when I look at the pipeline, you know, people talk about, do we have a pipeline problem when it comes to this? My understanding is up through college, there are actually more women than men getting degrees in the life sciences. And then it's post-college mm. where things start to flip. Okay. When you look at graduate programs, yeah. there are more men than women. And certainly as you start to look at the higher and higher ranks, and especially the C-suite in biotech, um, the numbers are, are quite skewed. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to problems that are not specific to the life sciences. Yeah. I think they're, they're any industry in any company you hire people who are like you. Hiring is certainly one of the scariest things I ever have to do in my job, and I I think that's true for a lot of people. And so anyone tries to make it less scary or less risky might be the better way to say it. And so one of the ways to do that is is to identify people who look like you. And that doesn't necessarily mean same height, same skin color, Mm -hmm. but in in some way share characteristics with you because that feels safe or close to home. And so I think when you have an industry that's been historically dominated by men, plus you do something dramatic to intervene, yeah. that's going to continue self-perpetuating. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of, one of the easy ways to start solving this problem is to look at the data. There are really clear studies that have been done at Harvard Business School and many other places that show financial returns are better the more diverse the management team is and the more diverse a board of directors is. So even setting everything else aside, uh, financial return should be driving these decisions. And so I I think there are a few fairly straightforward things that companies can do. Um, I think we need to talk a lot more about implicit bias. Even, Even in the studies that have been done by a number of academic groups, 
even women have implicit biases against other women. Um, we need yeah. to talk about that. We need to just address that and not let it be the elephant in the room any longer. And I think there's simple things that companies can do in a recruiting process. You know, at a certain stage, if you look at um, all the resumes for the candidates you're considering, and if they're all men, you say, you know what, I haven't fully tapped the talent pool yeah. yet. I need to go back and, and find more. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a phrase that I've heard a couple times in the past day and a half now here at the conference um, from Dr. Pendron is, talent is universal, opportunity is yeah. not. Uh, and that has really resonated with me, and it, it's making me think a little bit about some of the procedures that we even have yeah. at our company. Um, but I, I think there are simple things that you can do to make sure that the pool of, of candidates you're looking at yeah. reflects the group of individuals you want to end up with at the end of the hiring process. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so at least, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged to a certain extent by this conversation in terms of, um, of, of what you said, that at least in, in terms of the pipeline in in the life sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is it may be different in engineering. And it's definitely a lot worse in engineering. Computer, computer science, science and, yeah. and, and the like. But, that, you know, at least in the life sciences, there is there is gender parity yeah. in terms of, 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 uh, of the pipeline. And then to a certain extent, then it becomes easier to solve at the, uh, the problem becomes easier to solve at the corporate, uh, corporate level. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about the technology. Mm -hmm. So, for a lay audience, including myself, can you explain what you know what CRISPR is and what it does? Yeah. So CRISPR is a technology for what's called gene editing, which is the ability to go inside of living cells and precisely change the DNA sequence. Okay. So I like to think of that as kind of Microsoft Word for the genome. Yeah. So we're not quite as sophisticated as Microsoft Word is yet. You know, if you open your, your manuscript in Microsoft Word, you can make a whole variety of sophisticated changes. Yeah. Uh, we're pretty good at deleting one gene mm -hmm. and only one gene at a time um, as a field. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're learning and in certain cases are getting pretty good at inserting a new gene but that's definitely still an uphill battle yeah. and are only just starting to explore what we call multiplexing, which is the ability to make two changes or two or more changes all at the same time. So this, this technology is incredibly powerful, very exciting, and I would say in its infancy still. I think we, we envision a world that looks a lot more like Microsoft Word in terms of number and complexity of changes but there's a lot a lot of technology development between here and there is it is it just the the technology that's the issue because i've i've also heard the descriptions of, of of crispr that uh you know that, that go along along these lines which is we've we've figured out how to edit mm -hmm. a text but we're not yet um fully uh, fully able to read and write, so we we know how to kind of you know move letters around, but then we don't know what you know what the new meaning of, of you know the the, the, the sequence is going to be uh, that, that we're we're going to change. Is that am I? You're spot on. Yeah. Okay. The, the question of what to edit yeah. and for what purpose yeah. is a massive massive yeah. question still. Um, there are. 
probably five or 6,000 diseases that are caused by specific gene mutations. Yep. Only a small fraction of those are well understood and well characterized. Yep. Um, and beyond that, the specific role or influence of any one gene on any disease yep. or development is poorly understood, if anything is understood about it at all. Yep. I think we're, we're beginning to appreciate as a field that it's not one gene, one trait, if you will, but it's probably tens, hundreds, or thousands of different genes yep. that contribute to anything from how tall we are to how well our immune system might be able to fight cancer. Yep. So we are, we're complicated beasts, mm -hmm. and so even as, as the, the tools and the technologies improve, yep. you're absolutely right which changes to make and why what the consequences might be. There's a tremendous amount of learning that still needs to be done. And, and again, just to give listeners a sense of, of, of the scale, what's the, the number of genes in the human genome is? Uh, it's about 20,000 genes, something like that. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a big number. It's a big number. And the combinations are potentially endless. Infinite. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, that, so, so again, a lot of you know, a lot of discussion about gene editing, especially when it comes to uh, uh, you know to to issues around education and the impact that it could have on mm -hmm. on education, focuses on uh, what are colloquially referred to as designer babies, and you know, uh, you know the the ability to sort of genetically engineer. Uh, you know, a high IQ and, and, and you know, other traits that, that you know, correlate with, uh, uh, what, with what we understand of as intelligence. How, you know, say a little bit about what, you know, what, what's the, the, the level of our knowledge now, you know, how, how much of intelligence is, you know, genetic and, and are we anywhere near understanding what the, you know, what genes play what role? in in uh, in this yeah great great question um i would say there are a whole bunch of technology reasons why there are not going to be any designer babies this year um, okay one reason is exactly to your point which is that even if you were trying to make a more intelligent child the relationship between our genetics and our intelligence is not at all clearly understood. Yeah. Um, even with sort of infinite capacity to genome edit, which we don't have, of course, uh, I don't think anyone would know where to begin in terms of making those changes. Yeah. Um, there are also some, some practical hurdles in terms of how you actually deliver uh, the molecules that do the gene editing, which is a protein and an RNA that have to work together. Yeah. How you actually get those into early embryonic cells in the first place, that's very, very tough. Um, and then how you are convinced that that's safe and appropriate, um, which certainly the field is, is not there yet. And yeah. I'll, I'll say Caribou as a company has approached this topic and drawn a hard line and said that we ourselves will not be involved in modifying human embryos. And where appropriate, we actually write that into our contracts with other companies when we're granting licenses saying that they and, and their customers also not use our technology mm. to edit human embryos. That's that's interesting because you, you bring up a very I mean, well. There's a couple of interesting questions I think that, that flow from this, and 
So, so let me start with with uh, building onto the, the the question of intelligence, as it, it's quite a controversial topic in in, uh, in in some respects to you know the extent to which you know intelligence or, or traits like intelligence are uh, genetic versus environmental. Wh where do you sort of land on this? I mean, I think it's hard to deny that there must be some genetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, just as as there is on on any other uh, traits, you know how fast you can run, or you know whether you're you're tall enough to be a good basketball player or not. I mean, all all of these things are clearly there's a you know it would it would be hard to imagine there not being a genetic uh, variable that that, uh, uh, that that correlates with with intelligence. But but where do you land in terms of you know the the balance between environmental versus uh, uh, versus genetic factors on on this issue. Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying not my area of expertise, um, yeah. but certainly I, I think that genetics definitely play a significant role in this. Yeah. But it would be I think, naive to say that it's only genetics. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole nature versus nurture. Obviously, the environment, and that both means literally the physical environment around us, what chemicals we may or may not be exposed to, yeah. the foods that we do or do not eat, the nutrition that we do or do not have access to during development can have a profound impact on, on yeah. brain structure and things like that. Um, but also the environment in the sense of what we have access to, at what age somebody teaches us to read, when we start to learn about math. Yeah. Um, Know, simple things like getting access to learning how to read just a, a year earlier can have a profound impact on a child's success in school. It obviously had nothing to do with his or her yeah. genetics. So it, it's yeah. it's the whole kit and caboodle, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's good because I think, you know, again, policymakers ought not to despair. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you know th there are policy interventions that that are are meaningful, even if there is a you know there is kind of a, a a, a significant role that, that genes do play in in uh, predisposing us towards uh, you know academic success. Right. I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even maybe we shouldn't even use the word intelligence, but right, right. predisposing us towards you know uh, success in in in, in academic yeah. uh, uh, academic fields. Um, the the second I think in, interesting dimension of of, of of our conversation is this is is the whole. Uh, Question around the ethics of mm -hmm. uh, of, of technologies like uh, CRISPR, and it's it's really encouraging to hear you say that you, as a company, are taking a you know a particular stance. How how widespread is this in the uh, in the industry, and and, and you know are, are people having these conversations in a in a meaningful way, or is it for, for many people is it just sort of an afterthought, and it's it's of secondary importance to, you know, let's let's see how we can perfect the technology. Let's see how we can do what we want to do better, so so that you know, obviously we, we benefit people, but also right. there's an economic imperative to kind of racing ahead with this. Yeah, it's um, it's an area where I need to give a lot of credit to one of my co-founders and the woman who was my PhD advisor, Jennifer Doudna, uh, one of the co-inventors of this technology. She, from a very early point in the development of this technology, recognized a need to have this conversation, to have it over and over again with different groups yeah. and at an international level. 
And so she's been part of convening a, a number of different meetings in a variety of contexts. Um, not that long ago, there was a, a joint meeting held between the National Academies of Sciences here in the U.S. with their counterparts in, I believe, the U.K. and China were involved yeah. as well. So there, there are a number of conversations happening. Um, I'd say, by and large, all the companies who are involved in this space, in one way or another, have signaled they're not planning on editing human embryos either ever or certainly anytime soon. Um, and I, I think that comes from a variety of reasons. Some are ethical positions, first and foremost. Others are practical positions about yeah. risk-taking and, and how you mitigate risk as you try to build and, and grow the value of a company. Some are a combination of all of the above. Um, but I, I think that there is a robust international discussion, and I think it's uncovered some pretty fascinating differences between cultures that certainly I was unaware of. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, when this technology sort of first uh, became prime time, there was a, a pretty well-shared view across the research community in the United States of, we're just not going to go there. Even from a research perspective of editing embryos, not to try to create babies that would be you know, born, but even just to understand development. People yeah. were, were very hesitant to go there. Whereas in the United Kingdom, which I think of as being you know, very similar from a cultural yeah. perspective, especially within the research sciences, their laws are very different. And to even work with any early embryonic tissue, you as a scientist actually have to get a special license from the government. And the license requires that you keep that tissue alive for only 14 days and then you have to sacrifice the tissue so it doesn't get too far along mm -hmm. in development. Yeah. And if you do that wrong, you go to jail. And so that created a very mm -hmm. different structure where yeah. in the UK there was a box. If you stayed inside the box, it was comfortable from yeah. a, a policy perspective. Whereas in the United States, there is no box. It's legal. Um, and it created a, a fear of a slippery slope. And so we saw yeah. work happening on this front in the UK before it happened in the US. Now at this point, there's also been research done yeah. here as well. Um, and as a result, a lot of the funding agencies are actually the ones who are driving the conversation because they're the ones who control the purses and therefore yeah. decide what they will fund and what they won't. Um, and the NIH here in the United States is not funding this type of research right now. Yeah. So only groups who have access to private dollars and private dollars that are willing to fund this yeah. are able to do it right now. Uh, I mean, forgive the, the maybe the, the, the ignorance that, that uh, underlines this, this question, but if you're not able to test the technology on on uh, on live tissue how how are you able to then understand what it is that you uh, are or are not doing yeah that's a super question um, I would say the first round of, of testing that's happening that we're involved in many groups are involved in is testing the technology on adult cells okay. so rather than trying to start with, with small embryos um, they come loaded with Whole bunch of complexities, much of which we've just talked about, yeah. not, not to mention scientifically they're really challenging to yeah. work with. Um, almost everything that, that we and the, the rest of the companies in the space are working on is taking adult cells and modifying them. Okay. So it gives us a place where often they're cells we can actually take out of the body. They could be blood stem cells, yeah. various other blood cells, sure. bring them into the laboratory. And so there we actually have the ability to do a lot more quality control. We can measure a lot more yeah. things there. And 
start to really understand on a much bigger scale how safe this is yep. and ultimately get to a point where we believe that it's appropriate to put it in humans for certain very risky diseases and then ultimately looking at, at broader and broader opportunities. Yep. So, so the prohibition really is or the or the reluctance really is around embryos exactly. specifically, exactly. not yeah, That's right. That's not right. not live subjects per, per se. That's right. Yeah. There's there's very Human strong subjects. support yeah. um, across both the corporate and the academic research yeah. spheres for using CRISPR technology and other gene editing technologies to modify adult cells to try yeah. to treat or cure diseases. Yeah. That, that is something that most people in the research community yeah. are are very excited about. Yeah. And and so obviously the much of the focus of, of what you do is on on uh, on disease. That's right. What are the other you know potentials for this this technology that that um, that in the near future could could offer some uh, uh, some promising outcomes? Yeah, I think food is the other major market mm -hmm. where CRISPR has tremendous potential. Um, you know, if, if you look at the numbers, the number of humans who are going to be living on this planet in a fairly short period of yeah. time, um, the scale of what our international yeah. agriculture system can produce today, the numbers don't add, add up particularly well in a fairly yeah. short period of time. Um, you know, everyone likes to talk about the fact that it takes on average 10 years to develop a, a drug, a new medicine. I was shocked to find out that it takes on average 14 years to develop a new biotech crop. When you think about 14 years yeah. in the time span of global climate change, uh, that's not going to work very well. Yeah, no. And yeah. so one of the really exciting things about CRISPR technology is it lets us speed up breeding and, and yeah. reduce that timeline. Um, and so there are a huge number of groups, both in academia and in, in industry, who are using gene editing to try to do anything from make plants more uh, drought tolerant or resistant to particular diseases yeah. and pathogens, or try to undo some of what uh, big ag has done to the plants that we call fruits and vegetables. Yeah, um, you know, get a tomato that tastes like a tomato that you know tastes like I one would... of those wacky heirloom tomatoes you can <laughs> yeah. get at the farmers market. I would be very much in support of that, actually. <laughs> but that is, yeah. you know, robust enough to survive industrial scale agriculture, yeah. right? So there's yeah. there's tremendous potential. Um, and I, I think the challenge there is not so much the technology. I think it's it's consumer engagement. I think we're we're up against a pretty big challenge as many consumers yep. have significant concerns about genetically modified organisms and oh, other yep. technologies that have been used on their food. Um, I'm a firm believer that GMOs are perfectly safe. Yep. Um, but I also firmly believe that consumers have a right to better understand where their food comes from yep. and have some understanding of, of um, where food needs to come from yep. as well. And so I, I think there are a lot of opportunities to better engage the public, um, not only about new technologies, yep. but actually where our food comes from now. Uh, you know, if you look and also what's happened to it historically, exactly, because exactly. we've been modifying, genetically modifying crops yes. since, I mean, agriculture was founded on the basis of domesticating certain plant exactly. species that is is a, a, a form of genetic modification that okay, didn't happen in a lab, right. it happened in, in the field. Exactly. I mean, yeah. corn, classic example, yeah. the historical ancestor of corn looked absolutely nothing like it and its nutritional yeah. content was pretty poor in comparison. Yeah. And so I, I think that it's hard to put some of these new technologies in context, 
if you don't have a better understanding of, of where food came from. And yeah. Is. So that, 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 that's an interesting segue because, and again, it's, it's what's intriguing to me about, uh, about th this particular issue is that it's, it's sort of the reverse of the, of, of the uh, em embryonic research. Mm -hmm. Uh, issue because the uh, Europe, the UK has been, you know, we're early adopters of embryonic research. As you say, you know, so long as you stayed within right. within right. the box, you could you could do it. Um, <clears throat> but they've gone completely the other way when it comes to uh, GMOs. That's right. Um, and there's sort of an absolute prohibition, which doesn't really make a whole whole lot of sense because I think. Uh, you know, the, the evidence would support your assertion that they're they're safe, right. or or at least no um, no more dangerous than than what we've been doing for the past you know uh, six or or more thousand years exactly. since since the beginnings of agriculture. Yeah, I I heard someone several years ago say that given that. CRISPR-based therapies are likely to be adopted fairly rapidly in Europe, as they're likely to be adopted fairly rapidly in the United States. Yeah. There is the potential that someday there will be a CRISPR-edited politician arguing against CRISPR-edited foods. Yeah. And I, I, I like that mental <laughs> that, picture. That a is lot. a good, interesting. Uh, and I, you know, I think yeah. it, it draws a both logical and illogical contrast between how consumers yeah. approach the use of technology. Yeah. Right. My perspective is focusing on the science itself. Um, yeah. So that's my background, and so all I see is gene editing. But most consumers see it through the lens of the product that they interact with. So yeah. if it's a medicine that typically comes with tremendous hope and enthusiasm and appetite yeah. for cutting edge and exciting and new. Yeah. Um, whereas when it comes to what parents are putting on their kids' dinner plates, there's a lot of uh, conservatism. People are not interested in cutting yeah. edge and new. Um, and oftentimes want to explicitly stay away from it, uh, which is fascinating. So, so what in, in this debate, what role can education play to to, to better inform or better, you know, or, or predispose uh, people to have, should, should we say, a, a more informed debate? Education is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this discussion. Um, you know, I run a company that does genome editing. To even understand the sentence that I just uttered, there's a whole lot of education that you have to have had to yeah. understand what a genome is, what DNA is, and why on earth you might want to make changes to it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that until more people have access to not just knowledge of basic biology, but a personal relationship with their genome, I think it's really tough to engage a, a broader section of the population nationally and internationally in a debate about which genomes are okay to edit and which should never be edited. Um, you know, often I'll, I'll start a talk and very quickly try to figure out through the audience yeah. where, where people are coming from. Um, and I don't mean geographically, I mean educationally, yeah. to understand you know, where, where in that story we start the discussion. I mean, certainly education, um, I think, has a role to play. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how one would, you know, would, would approach this other than I, than I suppose making people aware of how much genetic modification we as human beings have been doing to, to the natural environment through, throughout our history, whether it's 
agriculture or I mean, well, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a, a dog lover. I have pets, but you know, you look at right. dogs are a great example. We've been genetically modifying these these poor creatures, and you know, we we manipulated their their genome so that they come in all kinds of you know shapes and sizes and temperaments and 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 whatnot, and 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 we do it without you know. Without a, a almost a, a second thought. I mean, now there are, you know, people debating about whether it's 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 even right to you know to 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 have created certain breeds because they, you know, they they, they suffer from you know inability to breathe and and, and properly and, and and all sorts of other issues. But but you know we we've been doing this for you know throughout our 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 history as a as a kind of settled species. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, one one fact that sort of always jumps to mind is, as I think about these issues, uh, apparently a few years ago a, a poll was done trying to understand consumer sentiment around organic foods. Um, and a significant fraction of Americans believe the difference between an organic strawberry and a regular strawberry is that the organic strawberry doesn't have DNA that the regular or possibly GMO strawberry oh, wow. does. Okay. And so that, you know, that, how how do you have a rational conversation about organic yeah. versus GMO if, if that's where someone's coming from? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you describe the GMO as the regular strawberry. Uh, well, right, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. E either one, actually, yeah. either one. Sure. Um, They're both regular that's strawberries. Right, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that that's a tough starting point for yeah. the conversation. Um, and I think that, you know, certainly the, the biology and the classes that, that kids get in school, I'd, I'd like to think that that's a place where they can at least fundamentally understand that every living organism has a genome. Yeah. That, that'd, be, that'd be a great thing to walk out of school yeah. knowing. Yeah. And, and whether it's another human being that manipulates it or, or evolution. Exactly. It's still being manipulated exactly. in some way. That's yeah. right. No, it's, it's interesting. Where, where are you on on the issue of of uh, uh, of, of artificial or or laboratory? I shouldn't say artificial. Actually, laboratory grown meat, for example. Are you is that is that something that's? I mean, obviously, there are companies, Memphis Meats, right, I think, being right. one that 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 are working on this. But is this something that's in our you know near uh, future? Uh, personally, I'm really intrigued. Um, yeah. I've had a chance to meet the CEO of Memphis Meats and a few other folks in, in yeah. the field, and I think it's fascinating what they're trying to do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll readily admit I'm from Texas. I love eating meat, um, but I'm yeah. I'm also aware of, of the impact and the carbon footprint that that has. Yeah. So I, I personally have dialed down the amount of red meat and other meat that I eat, yeah. and if there were a way to get that flavor yeah. or that that taste in a way that's lower impact on the planet me up um, yeah. and so I, I think the open question is whether whether it will be the same or if maybe it's a whole new sort of type of food that that consumers will yeah. interact with and, and whether the price point works out at a scale yeah. that can be supported that makes sense now the, the reason I bring it up is because I'm I'm uh, I, I'm, I'm with you in terms of uh, being a, a you know uh, very passionate about my my meat but uh, <laughs> but at the same time aware that you know, not not just the carbon footprint, but also, you know, the the, the suffering that 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 uh, industrial um, 
level um, uh, animal husbandry causes uh, to, to to creatures that are, you know, we're, we're discovering are conscious and, and aware and, and certainly are capable of, of feeling suffering and therefore there's kind of a moral uh, dimension to this as well. So, you know, and the reason I bring it up is that I'm just wondering whether that might be the avenue to take it, it, and, and rather than sort of logically trying to obviously there's an element of logic and and, and and understanding that people need to have around you know uh, the, the potential of, of GMO to improve things but but really highlighting and making the emotional case that actually by by adopting this technology you know here's a whole bunch of benefits that that you know you can have uh, you as an individual but also on the environment on other you know on, on other beings that, that share this this planet with us absolutely i think for a number yeah. of projects that that is the key driver um, and that's those are stories that should be shared um, you know I, I also think that there are there are opportunities for research science to to show the good in in this as yeah. well by looking at some of the crops that are being threatened out of existence right now um, you might not be able to tell it from the grocery store yet but bananas and oranges are being killed off in rapid numbers across the globe wow. and unless there's I, I didn't know that. Yeah. really significant changes made um, you know the American breakfast table is not going to have bananas and orange juice on it in 10 years time Wow. Um, and so I you know I think there are, there are a number of challenges in our food system that aren't just yield or quantity um, but the actual substance of them where potentially gene editing and, and other technologies can play a role in, in solving these problems and saving these crops saving yeah. these plants um, which, again, to your point, I think is is good and healthy for the environment. Yeah. Um, Rachel, I'm conscious that we're we're coming up to our to our time, so I wanna I wanna end by asking you a question that I ask all uh, interviewees, which is um, if if there's one area of knowledge or one uh, skill that you believe everyone should have a you know good grasp of. Uh, what would it be? And I, I realize this might maybe a kind of a loaded question for a, a geneticist, but <laughs> I'm going to ask it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, not a skill that I have. Okay. A skill that I wish that I had. Okay. Um, and then the reason for that? I think that <clears throat> you know, in, in today's data-driven world, uh, no matter where you are, your ability to interface with with computers, to program, to code, uh, it only makes you better at your job, regardless of what your job is. And in many cases, will open doors for you that are not otherwise open. And that's today. I only imagine that it, that's going to be true on steroids yeah. five years from now, ten years from now. Oh, that's that's unexpected. I thought you were <laughs> going to 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 put in a strong plug for uh, uh, for an understanding of genetics or maybe evolution or or. Don't get me wrong. That's important too. <laughs> it's important too. <laughs> Rachel Howitz, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and for being on Wise Words. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at wwwwise Qatar org backslash wise dash words and if you want to continue the discussion compliment or critique us you can find us on twitter at wise underscore tweets 
or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wisepod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.